this weekend we had an opportunity to have our real relationship training conference together where we really spent a lot of time talking about how to deal with conflict, how to deal with issues in our life with each other. And it was great because it feel like it sent many people into conflict. And I was like, oh, good. Uh, and it was overall, it was wonderful. But uh, honestly, it was so great. And part of the training that we do or the assessment comes down to what is it that you are strong in? What are your strengths that you're really good at? And this may come as a surprise to many of you, but two of the strengths that I carry you know, some of the ones that are a little higher up are persuasiveness and competitiveness. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Those are great strengths. And if some of you are like, what? Um, they're great strengths. I, it, I like to win. I love playing games. I like to win. And I, I like the games that when you have to play against the people with the rules of the board. If it's just like, oh, the rules keep changing and all that. No, I, I can't do those games. Like apples to apples, don't play that with me. I will not be pleasant for you. Um, it, I just won't. But uh, it, it, one of the favorite games that I have, it could be one of my top two or three games, is Monopoly. Is Monopoly. Any, any other, you love Monopoly out there? Okay. If you do, you're usually like, yes. How many of you hate Monopoly? Oh, I see those hands. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think there's a reason that you hate it. I do. I do. Um, but I will tell you, there was a big moment for me as a dad when we could take our kids from Monopoly Junior, where I'm like, this is so dumb. Two properties, you, know, you, can't, like, you can't build, like, I can't do this. I want to play real Monopoly. And the moment I got to teach my kids real Monopoly was a very um, big moment for me. And I remember this. And I talked to my son about it this week. He's like, I don't remember that totally, but it makes sense. And I was like, OK. Um, I was teaching them to play the real game. You know, none of the, the, the stupid house rules were like, you land on go, you get extra money. No, you don't get extra money. You wait until you pass it, then you get your money. That's the way the game is played. You'll put extra money in the middle. You know, that's for rookies who can't manage their money. You just play the game. Uh, see, aren't you excited to play games with me? Um, so, uh, you know, we begin to teach our kids to play this. And I say we because Eileen was playing with us, and she's one who hates the game because it has cost fights in our marriage. Uh, because I want to win. Any other, you've sacrificed your relationship for Monopoly win? Yeah, cool. Um, I feel you. There was one point that I um, realized this is when, after all the properties are bought, this is the moment that makes or breaks a game. This is the moment that many of you begin to hate Monopoly, and it's simply because this is when trading begins. This is when you've got to read the people who are there, you've got to read what you've got, and you've got to determine what's it going to take to win, and how can you maneuver things. I live for this moment. I love it because I've been reading the whole game. I see what you're buying. I'm watching your pattern. I know what you want. And I will exploit. No, I, I, I what's that? It is. It is. It's like, it's not that deep, but it is. Like, right. So I'm, I'm, I'm training, I'm teaching. And now the moment comes and I begin to teach them how to trade. And my son begins to work a trade, but it's not with me. He begins to work it with Eileen. And Jam starts to work this out, and I'm thinking, oh, he's getting the, look, he's working it. And it, it dawned on me in one moment, if he executes this trade, it is a nail in my coffin. If he executes this trade, I cannot win this game by any means because all of my chips are off the table. I, they, everything is taken away from me. What do I do in this moment? It was a fair deal. It was like, oh, he's going to need this if he wants to win, which is the objective. 
And so I'm not saying anything, right? Let him make it until the moment happened and he turned to me. And in his eight-year-old innocent voice, he looks to his father for wisdom and simply says, Daddy, is this a good deal? <laughs> yeah, you're saying, oh, I know you feel bad for me. <laughs> I just told you my strengths are being competitive and persuasive. I'm stuck in this moment. Do I want to win? Because if I say this is a fair trade, I cannot win. And I know that if I say don't do it, he won't do it. I know that. Do I persuade him? Do I compete or do I stop and reinforce this you know, ability to make a good trade, celebrate that he's done it, and basically you know, toss the victory in the middle? What do you do? And I know you're sitting here thinking, what type of pastor do I have? <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you what I said yet. I know. I'm going to bait you a little here. But here's what I'm going to tell you. The advice that I gave him, it continues to be the advice and the standard to which I play Monopoly. It's important to me. I think it's a wise way to play. And for you competitive folks, I mean, right now, you're convinced he lost that game and I won. And for you compassionate folks who have think highly of me way more than you should, you're like, oh, he definitely told him to make the trade. Here's the truth. I think as silly as this is, it's Monopoly, right? Big deal. We're presented with opportunities and choices and moments every single day where people are seeking out our wisdom as to what to do for something that could be mundane or something that could be huge. And, and we are in these situations every single day where we have a choice and do we choose A or do we choose B? How do we know what's right in a moment where, to be honest, there is no wrong decision with Jimmy and I there because the objective is to win, but it's also parenting. What's the right call? And I know you're thinking, no, there are, if you said, don't trade, that's the wrong call. How do you know that then? What, what are you measuring that by? What do you do in those situations? How do you know who you're supposed to listen to and who you're not supposed to listen to? How do you put yourself in a position to make the right choice when it comes your way? And regardless of the choice you make, how, how do you determine if it's the right one down the road? How do you measure these things and deal with it? And maybe I'm the only one who stresses out about this. Uh, maybe I'm overthinking things. I just don't think I am. But this morning as we continue in our series through the book of James, I'm so grateful that James addresses how to make decisions and where we can gain wisdom. And so if you would, I would love for you to turn to the book of James with me. It'll be all the way at the back of your Bible. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, if you don't have it, we'll have it on the screen in a little bit. But it's really important that we, we just highlight one thing as we've gone over this the last couple of weeks. And it's simply in verse 5 of chapter 1, Pastor Will highlighted how we can identify the maturity in ourselves simply um, by the way that we find joy, right? The more we mature, the more joy we're going to find in our troubles. And God doesn't leave us just to figure out these troubles and trials on our own saying, have fun, you know, good luck. He gives us a command, and here we find it in verse 5. James tells us, if you need, what's the word there? 
If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Does anybody else need some wisdom in their life today? If you're online and you're watching with us, you could raise that hand. I know you need this too, just like I do. We need wisdom because if we take the truth from last week that our tongue has this, this tiny little tongue that we have has this ability to, you know, direct, destroy, or delight in people, this gets us in trouble most of the time. How do we know if what we're listening to is correct? And because out of Luke chapter 6, Jesus reminds us it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so how do we know if what someone's saying comes from a healthy heart or a destructive heart, a godly heart or a worldly heart? I like that James talks about our words and he transitions um, what it means to be wise because we're going to need that. It makes sense to me when we look at this from, uh, remember he's writing to a Jewish community at the time. So in Proverbs uh, chapter 17, it simply says, a true wise person uses few words. A wise person with understanding is even tempered. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouth shut, they seem intelligent. When we speak, our words will show others if there's wisdom or a lack thereof. And not all wisdom is equal. I, I know this because we've received good wisdom and bad wisdom, haven't we? And I know you're probably thinking like, bad wisdom? That sounds like an oxymoron. Is there such thing as bad wisdom? Uh, well, not to the person giving it. They actually believe what they're saying and they stand behind it. True wisdom, according to this proverb at least, is knowing when to shut your mouth and not say something because we don't know. How do you not say something? Like, ooh, there's wisdom in not saying things? Yeah, there is. Because at least at that point, you seem wise. That's enough. And if you're thinking right now about all the advice that maybe you've given people, was this wise, was it not? Am I a fool? The answer is probably yes to both of those at times, right? Because it comes out of the overflow of our heart and it's totally natural to think those things right now. I get it, I am there every day and you're surrounded by people who give good wisdom and don't. So how do you determine what you're supposed to do? I love that James throughout this entire book has kept everything very practical. There's no way you can listen to any of these series since Pastor Will started to now and think, I don't know if this applies to me or what I could do with it. This is like, you could take this right out in the hall and you gotta do something with it. That's what I love about James. So he says this in chapter three, we're gonna continue there, starting in verse 13. He says, if you're wise in understanding God's ways, with that, prove it. What did we talk about last week? or two weeks ago, you got to prove it, prove. He says, if you're wise and understanding God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility, underline that word in your Bible if you have it there, with the humility that comes from wisdom. James is art, just summing up what he said, all right? Uh, he's saying to these Jewish churches, these persecuted churches, that you need to prove your faith sometimes. You do. You, you, the way that you live will prove your connection to God. And so you're going to prove that through good deeds and that word humility that's there. That's not the best translation of the word, okay? It's not. If you go into the Greek, the word that James uses is proutes, okay? I'm not even going to spell it or put it up there for you. It's a weird word. I'm saying it wrong. But the better translation of this word is, is not, it's, it's gentleness. 
It's gentleness. But not the gentleness you're thinking of that's like, oh, that's so nice and pleasant. That's, they're very gentle. They're very so No, it's the, the idea behind this is an active attitude of deliberate acceptance. It is not like gentleness that's a passive, weak, um, fearful, resigned, I don't want to say anything. It really has to describe almost like uh, last week. Do you remember the bit in a horse's mouth, the bridle that they would put on to control a horse? Gentleness is this ability to have something so delicate that controls something so strong that it, it does not operate in strength to push, but it directs the strength to be controlled, which makes sense when he says that, right? Our gentleness to others, our strength that we have will be proved through the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Our power from the Holy Spirit, this gentleness that he gives us, this is a characteristic of wisdom. This is beautiful because it means you don't have to be like sorry for what you say if it comes from scripture. Like, we're so like often like scared of saying things. Because wisdom, especially there's two different types of wisdom that James would have understood that might be different than us. When James is writing to these churches, there's the Greek type of wisdom that was completely saturating the culture, that had everything to do, it was speculative, it was theoretical, it was ideas that did not really impact your everyday life, and it could constantly be changing in conversation. They loved the conversation, but that's not a Jewish perspective on where wisdom is and what wisdom is. A Jewish theology of wisdom was, if it's not practical, it's not wisdom. If it doesn't change what you do in practice, why are you even talking about this? I love that. That makes sense to me. And so James isn't being all theoretical or all like, ooh, let's have a conversation about this. He's saying, no, you got, we got to deal with the wisdom. I'm not saying you need to think about all these things. You'll know from what you're doing if this is wise or not. Our guide, it's not going to start here. Our guide for wisdom actually does start here. And if you're thinking, oh, my feelings in my heart. No, no, no. It starts from a filling of the Holy Spirit in our soul. This is where it comes from. Let's actually read this whole passage. Um, James 3, starting in verse 13. Um, actually, would you stand with me as we read the word of God today? This is the word of the Lord from James 3, starting in verse 13 to verse 18. He says, if you are wise and understanding God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life and doing good works with humility, with power, with gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you're bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. 
I know there's a lot in those six verses, but let's just separate it into simply there's two types of wisdom that James says. The first is there is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. We will simply call this worldly wisdom, okay? And the second is there is godly wisdom. And the reason I just want to say worldly wisdom is I don't feel like saying earthly and spiritual and demonic every single time. So I'm going to lump them together. There's really only two types of wisdom here. There, there's no other choices. And if you notice, James doesn't say there's good wisdom and bad wisdom. Those are too broad. They leave too much space for us to determine good and bad, right? Where this wisdom come from, comes from, actually, it, it, it matters. So let's unpack these a little bit. Let's look at that first type of wisdom, this worldly, earthly, and spiritual, demonic wisdom. This is what he said is this type of wisdom. But if you are... Check, it, check out this word, bitterly jealous. If you're bitter, bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition, I'm going to confess to you right up front, I have trouble saying selfish ambition without being very intentional and messing it up. So if I slur, I receive your grace now, okay? If you're bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly and spiritual, demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Can you get a sense of where worldly wisdom is rooted? You could speak back to me here. Jealousy and selfish ambition, selfishness. This is the root of worldly wisdom. It's jealousy and selfishness. This was a major issue that James needed to actually approach in the church. So he's not talking to the world outside. He's talking to the church inside, that we could get wisdom from this place. These two might not always be the easiest to see in people either. That's what makes this so hard. Um, and that's why he says you, you can't just listen to the words necessarily, but you've got to look at the person's life in general and does the words that overflow from their heart, what's rooted in some of those words? As we learned last week, if there's the overflow, it doesn't matter how spiritual we think that we are, our advice or our teaching, our suggestions to each other, if jealousy and selfish ambition are in and exist and are rooted and overflow from our hearts, guess what? Our spiritual advice, this is false wisdom. This is worldly wisdom. Unfortunately, I think that many Christians believe this false wisdom, that, that we actually think this is valid, and we even celebrate and hold up false wisdom because we like it better than godly wisdom. We have this unreal ability to take the inspired word of God and pick and choose verses that we like, that that is good. We should do that. And avoid things that make us uncomfortable. And I'd rather not. I say, I have a problem with this sometimes. I know it's easy to like to do that, but we don't get to pick and choose scripture, what we like and what we don't. This isn't a buffet. This is a full meal we're, we're invited to, to eat from, to enjoy. It's all or nothing, and... We can't just say, well, I, I really like when Jesus says things like, you know, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. And it's a great passage. And uh, yeah, God, thanks for that. But I really don't like when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
I mean, I, he's not being literal there. He, he's, that's not what he, he doesn't really mean what he says. Y- yeah, he, he does mean what he says there. It's actually in the same exact chapter. You can't say yes to mourning and no to persecution and praying and, bl- like, oh, I don't like that. Does that make anybody else uncomfortable here? Like, I don't, I don't really, what? I mean, think about this. If, if someone who is under attack from someone else came to you for wisdom and this person is doing this and they're, they're driving me nuts, they're an enemy, what wisdom do you give them? What would you tell them to do? Would you tell them to fight back? Would you tell them it's okay to hate your enemy, to get them back for what they've done, that they deserve what they're going to get in return? Would your first response be, you know what, let's stop and, and pray that you might be able to love them? Let's pray because that seems hard right now and celebrate this persecution a little. First response for anybody? <laughs> right, that's so hard. Even something as simple as this, we can mix up worldly and godly wisdom. We do. I, I mean, come on, how often are we rooting against enemies? We root against people all the time. We hope that they get what they deserve. When instead God is saying, I wish you would pray for them and love them. That's so hard. And at the risk of really frustrating you this morning, I want to keep this as practical as James does for us and contextualize it as best I can. Uh, Right now, how are you praying for the Ukrainian and the Russian citizens? Like, how are you praying for them? There's a lot going on there. They need the love of Jesus, and they need safety. How are you praying for the president of Ukraine right now? wisdom, discernment, make good choices. How are you praying for President Putin? And you're thinking, like, very differently. Jimmy, I, I, like, what? Worldly wisdom to tell us, would tell us we're to pray against President Putin right now. That we're to root for his death that we're to to celebrate his destruction like we did when we got Osama bin Laden and he got what he deserved. I'm sorry, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And yes, President Putin, without any question, is an enemy right now because he has so little regard for humanity and people individuals created in the very image of God that he loves every single one of them. But nowhere, nowhere throughout the Bible does Jesus tell us, does, any, does God tell us here that you should pray for the death of someone else? And before you give me the, the whole, and I, I know the justification of this, well, Jimmy, the ends justify the means, right? If in the end we save all these people, then it's worth it now. Let me just call that out for what it is. It's an ignorant lie. And I say that because you have no idea what the future holds. You have no idea what decision you make now and how it impacts the future. We are not that wise and smart. I know we think we are, but we are not. 
omniscient. We are not all-knowing. Only God is. And if this were to happen, I mean, only God knows. What if we were to pray for these enemies that God would, would completely transform their lives, that they would fall desperately in love with Jesus? How different would a country look? Yeah, it would likely cost them their life. But that would not be our request because at that point, if it cost them their life, they are in celebrating holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How do we pray? What would have happened if the churches that James is writing to pick and chose what Jesus said? If they didn't, if they leaned on the earthly wisdom that you root against your enemy and do all you can to pray for their death. When, when Saul, this Pharisee, goes around persecuting them, taking them, stoning them, killing them, families. What would have happened if they continued to pray for his death? Even when he was saved through the grace of Jesus Christ, they didn't believe it. Uh-uh, he's out to kill me. He's the reason the gospel continued to spread to so many people that looks like you and me. I don't like what Jesus says, but I know that it's right. And too often I think that we give worldly wisdom because we're uncomfortable with what godly wisdom says. It's selfishness. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I, don't, I didn't want to say that. Even when I wrote that down, it was so uncomfortable. And I thought of taking that out until it was affirmed in casual conversation with one of our elders. He's like, I've been thinking and praying. I'm like, <gasps> okay, I feel this conviction too. Listen, in so many situations, we give each other wisdom that contradicts what Jesus says. We do. And you can always tell when a family, a church, in a situation that, that, that loves Jesus is giving each other this worldly wisdom because you'll find massive amounts of jealousy, selfish ambition. You will find divi division. Churches divide over godly wisdom. Instead of humbly depending on what the Spirit of God tells us through the word of God. We're going to just continue to look to what the world says. And I'm sorry, this wisdom is not good for us. The other category that James gives us quickly is, is this godly wisdom. And he talks about that here in verses 17 and 18. He says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times. It's willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And it's funny, as I've read this so many times, I've written this off, and maybe some of you too are like, that's not wisdom, that's like, that's someone who's gonna get rolled over. <laughs> that person can never exist in the 21st century in America. Um, they're gonna get eaten alive. I, I hear you, but I truly do think it is unbelievably tragic when Christians don't uh, think that when we don't use practical wisdom, when things don't work themselves out in everyday life, and that, I mean that in a personal way and in the church itself, how we operate as a whole. Too many people have this idea that like, if something is spiritual, it's impractical, it's floaty. Like when we say spiritual, it's like, oh, it's a thing out here that doesn't really, we'll talk about it. No, 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 spiritual is practical. It, it has to be. And so this has to be practical wisdom. And when the Holy Spirit guides us and kind of directs us where to go through Scripture, through wisdom of talking with each other, 
He uses our minds and he expects us to act in wisdom, to get facts right, to weigh the issues in light of God's word. Please hear me. I'm begging you as followers of Jesus, for those of you who have dedicated your life to him, we cannot afford to be idiots. We just can't. We're watching the world around us get educated in so many things. We don't do our homework. We say things that pastors or preachers or speakers or politicians say that Jesus never says. Can we just say what Jesus says and then do the research to back up why we say those things? There's a reason we soap. There's a reason we constantly are looking at scripture together. I'm begging you, please. We can't afford to look like idiots. We already do in so many ways because we've given up wisdom. It's okay to contradict somebody, but it can't be because I feel like that, because I think so. Where'd you get that info? I don't know. No go. We're not allowed. This is practical. When our heart is in line with God's heart, I think we are in a much better place for ourselves and for the people who are around us, practically, because this wisdom is, first of all, it is pure. This has nothing to do with our sexuality or our sexual integrity. This is just simply means that this wisdom is not influenced by sin, jealousy, or selfish ambition. It's, it's of its own. It's itself. And the root of this wisdom is going to be found in Scripture. It's going to be found in Jesus' teaching. This is the first place that we should look. What does Jesus say about this topic? And if you're thinking, oh, he doesn't talk about all these things. No, he talks about an absurd amount. I'm telling you. It's crazy how practical he is. James also says that this godly wisdom is peace-loving. There is no way to make peace, and if your decision is not going to lead to a direction of peace, um, we're in trouble because God is all for peace. He just is. Not a false peace where you compromise the word just to kind of shut the conversation down or you're uncomfortable about it. You're like, you know, well, that's just my opinion. Okay, cool. I don't want to, that's cool. Like, there's a time and a place, but we have to stand up sometimes here. We're going to upset people even if it pieces in that sometimes. False peace is not peace. It usually is rooted in self-preservation or fear. It's running from conflict, running from relationships instead of bringing peace to conflicts and relationships. Godly wisdom will bring peace to these places. And Jesus constantly calls men and women. He calls us to be peacemakers. This may come as a surprise to you, but our world is built around selfish ambition and jealousy and Jesus says that you will know peacemakers because peacemakers, same passage where he says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be called children of God. And finally, James says that godly wisdom is considerate and willing, willing to yield to others. I know what you're thinking. You're never going to win a game of Monopoly this way. This is a lose in Monopoly. I, I, it is. Or is it? Surprisingly enough, I, I, if you're interested in the actual game and playing the game of Monopoly, this right here might be the most practical wisdom to play this game well and win most of the time. This is, this is the wisdom. Since the beginning of creation, people have lived like we are the center of the universe. Up to about 500 years ago, we were convinced the sun was the center because earth has to be, or, you know, or earth, the earth was the center. We are it. And then when it's like, no, the sun's the center, you heretic, die. Um, 
Logic, science, out the door for the church. Well done, guys. Because, listen, there's something to this. It, it took a completely reforming of science to help us understand we were not at the center. And even then, somehow we live life like we still are. Some of us, though, we live our lives like we're the sun. And that everything should revolve around us still. When there's traffic, how many of you get frustrated because you're going to be late? I do. All the time. And until I see that there's a giant accident, and it's my first response to pray for those people is to think, how do I explain this to so-and-so that I'm late because of the traffic? Like, it was an accident. I'm sorry. Am I sorry that I'm late or is there someone really injured here? Well, it impacted my schedule. That's why I'm really frustrated, if I'm being honest with you. That's my frustration. It's my sinful first response. I'm sorry. I still operate this way. I, I don't know when it happened, but somehow some of the first words that we learn, unfortunately, it's mine. I don't remember teaching my kids mine, but I remember the action and tone it was said. And I'm positive I've said that then. Oh, you see, we don't have to try to like, oh, that's not me. Yes, it is. It's all of us. This is what we do. Jesus, the very Son of God, lives the opposite way. He showed that there's deep wisdom in being considerate and this willingness to yield to others. When he met anybody, when you read through the Gospel of Mark with us in our next soaping season, you're going to see that he sees people. like Not like, oh, hey. Like, no, he stops and sees them. He perceives them. He hears them. He looks into their eyes. He listens to them. And even if he's on his way somewhere and this issue comes up, many times he stops and yields to what they need. And it's like, whoa. And other times he yields to what he needs and backs away to retreat. How do you do that? Well, he simply says, my life, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to complete his work. I just want to do what God is doing. I want to love what God loves and teach others to love what he loves. That's all I want to do. He loves the person in front of him. And all I'm saying is Jesus didn't always have to win. And it didn't mean he was a loser and it didn't mean he was weak. But in his gentleness and strength of the Holy Spirit, he lost for every single one of us. He lost for us by being nailed to a cross in a world that said, hate your enemy, in a faith that said, hate your enemy. And he said, I will die for everyone. And this is our calling, is to yield to others, to not win all the time. Good godly wisdom won't have us at the center. Instead, it will see the person in front of us with no agenda to change them, but every intent to love them. This means we need to start seeing people as image bearers of God, not enemies. We have to look at each other differently. That means that's a, an us issue. So we all have trouble, right? We need to ask for wisdom. James says you got two choices. Daddy, is this a good trade? Everything in me is yelling, yes, no, selfish ambition is strong with this one. <laughs> Jealousy of 
him actually, my eight-year-old, be able to being able to create such a good deal. Ooh, that was solid. When you ask for wisdom, who are you asking? Are you asking someone you trust? Because you'll listen to what they say. And out of the overflow of my heart, parenting's hard, isn't it? This is one moment in God's grace, I think God gave me the grace to get it right. There's so many times, I can give you all the illustrations of the mess ups. But in this moment, I didn't tell him yes or no. I didn't give him a yes or no answer because I don't see Jesus usually giving yes or no answers. Somehow the Holy Spirit transformed my mind and my heart to look more like Christ in this moment. And instead, I simply looked at the cards that were being traded And I said to him, Jimmy, I think a wise trade, a fair trade in Monopoly, is the one where both people are happy even if you swap the trade. And he looked at me and he's like, what? I said, the best trades in Monopoly are the ones where if they say, are you willing to do this? And you say, well, how about if we swap who gets what? So if mommy's offering you the light blues and she's asking you for the greens, all you simply do is say, how about I get the greens and you get the light blues? And if they yell at you and say that's not fair, they've answered for you. If, if they're not willing to take the trade, then it's not fair. It's not willing to yield to others. And in your gentleness, you are strong. Right? That, does it make sense? It may not be equal, but will it be fair? I, I don't know how that works out. But I know that my son in that moment looked at my wife. And he said, how about we swap it? And she smiled and with a hammer took that nail and drove it into the coffin and I lost badly. <laughs> And I had never had more joy in my life losing a game than watching my wife, who hates it, find joy because my son won his first game of Monopoly and I wanted to win so bad and I lost, but I won. I won and wisdom won in gentleness, in yielding to others, not rooted in jealousy. Our life is filled with moments where you get to choose. God gives you the practical choice. You get to choose. How will you choose? How will you choose to treat your coworkers, your spouses, your family members? How will you choose to operate in this church as a whole? How will you choose to be practical, not just theoretical in what we're teaching or going through right here? Are you doing something with this? Because if not, you're wasting your time. want a church, I dream of a church that loves people so deeply because they can say, you can go to Crossbridge, what they say is tough, but they're going to point you towards God and it, it makes sense, but it's hard sometimes. I want this so bad because I need this. Would you join me in constantly going after godly wisdom together? I need your help. Don't point me the wrong way. You need mine. If it's not grounded here, don't listen. Don't listen to it. 
this is the word of the Lord. I know that's frustrating you. I see it on your faces now that I can see them. And I'm not at all sorry. Would you pray with me as I invite Chris to give us wisdom or give it to pray for us in leading us in communion as I ask God to give us wisdom? Chris, I think you can give us wisdom, but I don't want to put that on you right now. <laughs> God, I pray that you would continue to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with the Holy Spirit that we would love deeply. Would you transform our minds, not just this like theoretical, oh, look, I, I think it's happening, but no, like transform our minds by an active study of your word, by research, by thinking, by applying what we read to our lives. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom to think, to feel, and to love you and the people around us with gentleness, with a strength that comes from the Holy Spirit to stand firm on the word of God that is unchanging and perfect. To not be apologetic for it, but never to use it as a weapon to beat, to prove others wrong, or to hurt someone but to invite them into studying and thinking with us. Holy Spirit, I ask that even as we leave here today, that you would convict us of where we go awry in asking for wisdom because it's what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom. Let it start with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.